album you're listening to the revolution will not be televised that was ghost funk with breakthrough now listen um it's my great pleasure to be able to welcome back to the program uh friend of the show friend of the station nikki hager kia ora, good morning good morning listen uh Congratulations on your work. Uh, obviously, you've been a busy man speaking to uh, multiple media, and you know, and the book is selling like hotcakes. I was lucky enough to get a book yesterday morning and to tear through it yesterday. And um, I'm hoping that today we can ask some questions that just uh, spin a new light on on some of the stuff because obviously the mainstream media gets bogged down on on a few key areas. Yeah, no, look, you're welcome. Please do. All right, now look, I guess. It might be uh, this. This book is, in a sense, sort of an intervention on how the day-to-day politics, you know, rolls out. And there's a certain cynicism. One of the lines of attack against the book is that, well, look, this is just this is the norm. This is just how things are. And if we peeled back the curtain on any of the other sides, that it would be the same thing. But maybe you could articulate um, for us, I guess, your position and how you feel that the media politicians, uh, party advisors, how they should be operating in a 21st century kind of media-centric uh, politics? Yes, yeah, sure. Look, the first thing I'll say is, when you'd, whenever I come up with something new, like a, a huge revelation about what the military or intelligence people are doing or something, you always, one of the, one of the classic PR lines is to say, everyone already knew that. Nothing mm. new here, folks. Move along. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole basis of my book was that I had found out things which were being kept secret, and there was a reason they were being kept secret, which was that people didn't know about them, and they didn't want the public to know. So, so that is, we should all be, you know, it's always good to have a kind of a, a, a healthy skepticism about the usual damage control that happens when mm-hmm. someone's in, prob- in trouble, and that's what that was. But, but coming to your bigger question, yeah, my book is about politics, and it's about about. Um, the relationship between the National Party and its attack dogs, but you're dead right about what the underlying story is. Mm-hmm. All of us get daily news. We get, you know, come if tripped up, did something stupid, this person said this about this. Mm-hmm. You know that stuff that goes on day after day. But what we don't get, what, and, and the reporters are all, ch- you know, they, they have a hard job being a, a daily reporter having to cover, cover the political news. They're running from issue to issue, you know, Mr. Cunliffe, why did you do this? Mr. Key, why did you do this? What are you doing? But what we don't get is the, is the bigger story, the kind of stepping back story of, hang on a moment, where did that scandal come from? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is, the, what's all, is there a gross and in, in, in personal attacks going on here? And, do, you know, does, actually, does the public want there to be this obsessive interest in little trips and slips and, and mistakes that people make so that we never get to talk about policy? Or what do we think about um, strategically releasing details of people's affairs like they did with Len Brown? And there's, there's all those bigger issues about what kind of country we have and what kind of politics we have. And, and actually, you know, who's, who's, who's exercising their power in unscrupulous or, or decent ways? which the daily media doesn't have as much time to do or doesn't, so often doesn't even know what's going on because the people are so busy. And, that, and that's what really my motivation for writing this book, and I was actually working on, I always have about, I always have many subjects which I think I'd love to do. Right. And, I was, and I've been looking at that, that the, the, this obnoxious, in my view, influence of bloggers who don't have to tell the truth and don't have to be fair and right. mere people 
and the fear it creates because it's really nasty to suddenly for people to find themselves being smeared and things. I've, I've been thinking about these issues and whether it was related to governments, and I know other people would have had the same thoughts. And suddenly I got this opportunity to write about that bigger picture. And what it opened up to me was much more than I expected because, because when I was looking at what Cameron Swayze was secretly plotting and doing, yes, he was doing it with his blogger mates and with David Farah mm-hmm. and sort of all sorts of secret associations like that. But then I found that many of their hits were being coordinated from the night floor or coordinated with the night floor of the Beehive. In other words, Mr. John Key... Who, present, who presents himself publicly as friendly and relaxed, and I go, don't go into dirty politics or negative politics. I, I keep things positive. I don't believe in that. Was on the one, on the one hand, he was have, living that part of his life, but on the other, he was trying to gain the benefits of having his staff coordinate with these attack dogs who had caused trouble day by day, week by week for his opponents, often in dirty and unscrupulous ways. Now, right. that's big. People have got a right to know that. No doubt. No doubt. And now, uh, the latest uh, that we're hearing, obviously the the attacks on your work, uh, whenever you uh, break through, kind of, you know, blow the whistle on, on, what, like you say, whether it's our military involvements, whether it's the PR nature of contemporary politics, has always been to deride your work and to slander your work as yeah. either fabrication, lies, nut job, oh, conspiracy, um, all the rest of it. Screaming left-wing conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Let me pass on the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's tough, and we feel for you in those moments, but it sounds like uh, you're considering how to release this information in the public domain. What are the considerations around releasing some of these logs of emails? Can you... Can um, you I'm not going to release all the information. Okay. I probably won't even release... I, I, I might... Uh, on the radio this morning, on Morning Report, um, I was being asked, what, you know, we can't see this stuff. Right. Let, journalists can't see this. It was, I mean, the implication is we have to take your word for what you write in your book, even though nothing is ever found wrong in your work. But that's sort of the implication is that, right. that, that we can't see this for ourselves. And so I said on the radio this on the radio New Zealand this morning that I would think about okay. releasing some pieces of it. But actually, I'm not, I don't actually personally believe in releasing it all, and I'll tell you why. Because this is an ethical question; it's not a legal question. Mm-hmm. This is actually also a legal question mm-hmm. if I can get sued for releasing things unless there's a high public interest. But it's an ethical question, which is that I've got somebody's leaked materials, and I and I and when it's about personal stuff or about, you know, their guilty secrets or all kinds of things which don't have a high public interest for people to know, I'm not going to stick it out there. I've yeah. got no right to do that. Well, uh, if I'm going to do something which I think is right and, and, and I'm doing the right thing, then I, I'm quite happy to use leaked materials which show that the government has lied to the public, that dirty tricks have been done, that people have misrepresented things with a high public interest, but I'm not going to put out information just for the sake of hearing or, right. or, or, you know, exposing somebody, because that's not my job. It's against the law to do that, in fact, and, I, and I'm not willing to do it. But if Judith Collins says that everything that you say is a lie and your implication, you know, your work implicates yeah. her in a very serious, uh, grave way... Uh, then, then I'm... Then that, I mean, you know, I've been doing... <laughs> yep. This is not my normal quiet life. I've been doing interviews back-to-back for the last 48 hours yeah. or something. But I... And so, in the midst, so I haven't had time to think about it clearly, but I right. am considering releasing at least 
a pile of things which people can see are real and authentic. Now, the uh, the journalist fraternity, um, you know, much of what you've revealed here is how uh, many of the big names of, of New Zealand politics journalism have been played like a piano by this cynical operation. Uh, do you sense anger and frustration about the reality of this? Again, do, did you know? Did they know that this is all Slater kind of National Party hit job stuff? Did they feel it but couldn't quite articulate it? Do you think the journalistic fraternity will kind of rally around this as, you know, they don't want to be seen publicly to be spun and manipulated themselves? So is this a, is this a moment for them to stand up, or will they defend the status quo? I mean, it's, I know It's kind of a mixture, actually. When I was writing this, there's a temptation to think, you silly bugger, why, did you, why would you <laughs> deal with Cameron Slater? And, 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 and think that it's a proper thing for a journalist to be given that kind of slime and then use it as your own without even admitting that it came from him. So, so I felt like naming and shaming people a bit. Mm-hmm. And you know what I did? I didn't name and shame. And actually, it was definitely the right decision because there but for the grace of God go I in the way. I don't have to make the news every day. I don't have yep. commercial, you know, heavy pressure on me to find new stories every day and get tempted by people offering me something on the plate. So I, I think I did the right thing by not outing people. And so what's, what's the... Re- and, and, you know, the next day they'll be doing a good story, which I'll be pleased about. So don't, don't beat them up for that, I think, is the fair thing to do. Right. But, so how's the reaction been from the media? I always fear that the longer-term journalists will think, huh, he's showing us up, the bastard. We'll put him in his place. Right. And some of them have done that, and I <clears throat> and I will just keep it to myself who or where. But I think they're <laughs> deeply petty, and and I wish that they could be a bit more, uh, you know, have a bit more emotional intelligence. But mostly, I've been very pleased, and, mm-hmm. and good on my colleagues for, for seeing it's an important story and not taking it like it's a, that, I, that just because I can do some work that they didn't have time for that I'm insulting them. And mostly, mostly it's been good. Right, but before I throw to Abe Gray, I just want to say that uh, John Armstrong and Patrick Gower would be two uh, people that have been thought of as, you know, well, whatever, reasonably, I don't want to say pro-national, but there's been question of some of, how, of, of their commentary, but they've come out very strongly in support of, yeah. of what you've revealed. Oh, so I, can, I, can I say, I actually like both of those journalists. Yep. I actually think, you know... It's a hard job being a day-by-day journalist. I like both of them. I think they both do good work. I really mm-hmm. want, I need to say this. Okay. John, John Armstrong is a bloody star. Okay. And, if, and maybe I don't always like what he writes, mm-hmm. but I think, he's a, I, think he's, I think he's one of the best in the country. So, so I just want, just want to put on air. Right on. No, let's not insult them. You know, okay. especially, you know, no, both of them, and, and, but particularly, I mean, John, I, I'm a great fan of his work. I would just say that Patrick Gower has found himself in the crosshairs a lot of the lefty blogosphere. Um, I guess that would be my implication, but Abe Gray. Yeah, and, and you know what I'd say about that? What I'd say is Cameron Slater has set a standard of politics in New Zealand, mm-hmm. which is bad, bad, bad. And the problem with it is that when it looks like it's successful and he achieves things and he gets prominence, yeah. One of the greatest risks is that other people imitate him. That that was uh, exactly my question. Um, you know, 
is yeah. is this going to be the new normal? Can well, can this book bring us back from the brink, or is there that temptation of the left? And it, it would seem that way. Uh, maybe you know, for example, personalities like Bomber Bradbury to to use these same sort of um, bombastic tactics and uh, shaping a narrative for a political end predetermined as a blogger. Yeah. Um, well, why do you expose things? You expose things because you want, not because you want people to be appalled and to hate politics, but because you want to show that things can be different. You want to say that things can be different. It doesn't have to be this way. This is the wrong way. And, we, and, when, it's, and when it's exposed, most people know it's the wrong way. And they just mightn't have understood or had a clear picture of it before that. And so one of the audiences that I care about is the other bloggers. And, yeah, and we, we do have, like... If people want to see some fantastic blogging, go, go and have a look at the Dim Post yeah. of Auckland writes. And he, I mean, it's so refreshing, intelligent. That's where blogs just come into their own. He put out a, he put out a list of all the things that he expected right, yeah, yeah, my yeah. critics to say, yes. to say after the book came out. And, and I, I recommend it to the people who are listening to go there because they'll have a chuckle at seeing how an intelligent person so accurately predicted all the wriggles and spins and, and diversions which have been put up since. It's a pleasure. You know, and, and in that case, what that does is, when you treat your readers as intelligent people, the whole country is more intelligent. And when you treat your readers or your listeners or your audience on TV as dummies, then the whole world is a bit dumber. So, you know, we, 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 I hope that by exposing the bad things and the ugly things and the dumb and the unfair things and the people who can make allegations without having to give proof... It means that more people do it properly, and it's better for the whole country. Right. Now, I haven't had the chance, like Olivier, to read one of the few copies of uh, the books that were available for purchase before they sold out down here. Yeah. Can you just um, explain for the listeners a little bit in more detail what material was actually contained in the leak you received? Because um, it had been mentioned that it was email, but from the little bit of the book I read, it also appeared to be Facebook chats. How big was the breadth of this leak? Yeah, sure. So... This was a, a leak from that, that, that um, from Cameron Slater, the whale oil blogger, which means it shows the, the sort of the spider's web that he's in the midst of, up to the beehive and other places. And there were two main sources of information. One was emails, and the other was private Facebook messaging. And everyone, I assume everyone who's listening knows what I mean. Not not stuff on his um, Facebook wall or whatever, or not something in public. Yeah. But his one-to-one communications over time with his main collaborators and mates and with Judith Collins and with other people. And there was, you know, there were many, many hundreds and hundreds of pages of that, which were, which showed how they thought and how they plotted. It was sort of like real time while they were doing political attacks and dirty tricks, talking to each other their way through it while they did it, which is, which is why when I saw it, I knew that I had just had a gold mine because because that kind of communication allows you to see inside their heads and in their own words and their own often cynical and horrible words mm. to see how they see politics and what they're doing. So um, it was that, that was the stuff. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, this is a lot more um, compared to American-style politics, this, this slippery slope that, you know, basically we don't want to go down into this constant muckraking, teams of private investigators going after everyone, but... The interesting thing in the United States is that that's been around for so long that a lot of people would be very wary of openly discussing this sort of stuff on Facebook. Uh, they didn't quite figure that out yet in New Zealand, it appears. Yeah, well, you know, United States politics is a, you know, 
not the stuff that we see on TV, the president waved and so on and so on, <laughs> but U.S. politics is a terrifying role model. And, and, and the more we cannot follow down that road, the better, because that's, you know, it's a road where ordinary people aren't going to be involved anymore, where real policies are hardly ever going to be discussed, even though it's the great democracy of the world, and where people with money and PR firms and big corporations pull the strings most of the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dreadful story. And, and again, that's why when we, when we see people in the, the, what I document in the book is people who are literally, directly, deliberately watching U.S. politics, watching U.S. Republican politics, mm. and importing ideas from that. And this is not, you know, sometimes you think, gee, this looks like something that, that's coming from overseas. But I'm talking about people who actually talk about yeah. stuff from the Nixon era and how that's real politics, or talk about the ideas they brought in and how to manipulate different bits of politics. You can read it in their own words. Right, and actually, it's a really interesting connection between uh, a kind of astroturfing of special interest groups um, and a kind of popular whipping up of crazy, the worst kind of paranoid, anti-communist slandering of you know the left spectrum yeah. of politics in New Zealand yeah. as pinko, communist, all the rest of it. And actually, if I think about some of the hysteria in the 2008 election around Helen Clark, or if I think about some of the Fartax stuff, I mean, that was almost the Tea Party before the Tea Party. Um, the Tea Party politics, beca yeah. because it doesn't try to be reasonable, and it doesn't try to debate the issues. It, just, it understands the nature of the media, which is that it likes a, a nice, easy, black-and-white picture, and it, ex it basically it manipulates politics in a way which dumbs people down and, and makes it impossible to have normal normal stuff going on. And, and Cameron Slater, in his personal correspondence, which is, it is incredibly important, like this is not just a, you know, the way you provide his per personal correspondence is obviously very important to kind of timeline the back and forth between insiders and between what he does and to make the connection. So it's not piling on because he's a creep, although he is a creep. But there's this incredible sense of entitlement, of contempt for democracy, and and r the most uh, clear-eyed cynical manipulation uh, that you know is almost unfathomable. Yeah, I mean, you can see why I wanted to write a book when I saw that stuff. Right on. Listen, Jason Ede is obviously, if you had to put your finger on where this really, obviously, the connections between this this nebulous of of the attack dogs and the party infrastructure and the use of the government infrastructure. Obviously, Jason Ede is is the linchpin here. Now, uh, sort of. Well, let me say, in the Prime Minister's office, yep. I think there'll be quite a lot of staff there who are breathing a sigh of relief. Right. Because they were involved in different ways in the stuff of... of you know, I don't think that this was a one-person operation, is what I'm saying. Right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not telling you on stuff that I've got hard evidence for, but in my analysis and Having worked on this for months and months and months, there were, there were plenty of other people doing similar things. Jason Ede was special because he was the one whose job it was to liaise with the bloggers. Right. And so that's why we actually see the correspondence between him and Slater and so on. But he's not the only one. Now, I would say, I'll, I mean, I guess what you've laid out is a, a modus operandi, and a reasonable, per, a reasonable person can assume that many, many people inside the party up to the Prime Minister's office. Obviously, we have the personal correspondence uh, between the Prime Minister and Cameron, and Cameron Slater talking about how the Prime Minister offered him moral support uh, in and around his controversy 
around the the west coast uh the person that he slandered yeah. can we tell that story because i don't sure listeners will know that okay, okay. please so do what, what happened was john john key and cameron slater were not bosom buddies right from the beginning of the story like back in 2008 election things they were probably quite distant but slater got more and more useful his blog got bigger and bigger he had more and more spectacular hits where he was the one who was causing trouble for labor and, and the winston peters and other people and gradually, him and, Winston, uh, him and Slater and Key got closer and closer. Basically, a useful tool mm. for the National Party. And, and where this comes to a head, and I put, put it near the end of the book, was when Slater was perhaps his most objectionable for years. And he'd written this blog post about a young guy on the West Coast who died in a car crash. And he, it's the one where he said, you know, feral dies on, on West and Greymouth does the world a favor. Yeah. And people were just thinking, kind of like rolling around going, yuck, this is really, really, we don't like this. Mm. And one of the communications I found that blew me away is that in the middle of all that, when everyone else was thinking how objectionable it was, his friends ring him up, there's various of Slater's friends ring him up to commiserate with him. And one of those people who did that was the Prime Minister of the country, ringing him up to say, don't you worry about this. She's the same effing bitch who yells at me when they go to Pike River meetings. Mm. And as mm. I said in the book, he mightn't have said effing bitch. That, this was Cameron Slater telling someone else about the phone call, so maybe those were Cameron Slater's words. But and what was John Key doing? Yeah. Ringing up to say, don't you worry about that woman whose son's just died and I insulted her, cause she's and you insulted her, because she's a real pain when I go to Pike River meetings, so don't worry about it, you'll be right. It was horrible. And Almost thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, that's 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 the thing. At a personal level, you must... I mean, he must have been feeling somehow Cameron Slater's pain in this moment where he exposed himself uh, to truly be the kind of gutter personality that he is. And, I'm, and you know, uh, and it should be said, though, that Cameron Slater uses the C word, the F word, just like, wow. Like, I mean... That's, right. that's why you don't blame someone else for using it just because he reports it. A- absolutely. Yeah. But listen, I wanted to get to this question of why was Eid... In Parliament, why was he on the parliamentary payroll as opposed to being outside of Parliament, just on the National Party payroll? And would that have been ethically okay? I mean, a, he seems to be. A few months ago, he got caught out about taking a photograph that, that was found to go on the whale oil blog, right? And they moved him onto the National Party payroll, right? Although everything, but during everything in the book that I wrote about in the book, like every single story he's involved in, he's he's on ministerial services. Huge salary. Yeah. And his office is two doors down from John Key's one still. Um, do I think it would be better if he was on the National Party? Well, could, he have done, could he have done what he did just uh, outside of Parliament to avoid what's a clear ethical violation, taxpayer, all that kind of stuff? Um, do you know what? Well, I, there's a very small issue that the public was paying for this. Mm-hmm. But the National Party is awash with money selection. Right. They, they've got far more money than other parties. They could easily, if they'd seen a threat, they could easily have moved him down to um, onto the National Party payroll as they did um, once he had some trouble um, earlier this year, or late last year, I think it was. Mm. Um, that's an easy thing for them to do, pay him in a different way, but it actually doesn't change the ethics at all. Because what right. the story is about is about what's in U.S. part Republican politics, Republican Party politics, is called a two-track system something they thought up around the Nixon era, where you want your leader to appear to be above dirty tricks and nasty politics and to be friendly 
and to be positive and to be able to say, I wouldn't be involved in anything negative on my opponents. So that's yep. track one. While track two, the same leader knows that their party and people under their control and being funded through their, their party donors and things are carrying out a campaign of, of dirty tricks and attacks for them. And that's what we've got in New Zealand. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a true sign of John Key. He actually, you know, all the time, when he's not feeling threatened, he's a, he's a relaxed, friendly guy. He kind of shrugs and he, mm-hmm. he says that things are okay. And that's, I mean, it's part of him, and that, people like that. And there's this other part of him which no one knew about, which was track two, which was that it was really convenient to have his opponents constantly being tripped up, constant little scandals and things going wrong for them, which were coming from seemingly nowhere, right. which meant that they were always on the back foot while he smiled and moved on through them and stayed up in the polls. I mean, that's really convenient. You can see why it was tempting to do it and why he would want that. It's just not right. right. And he's got outed on it, which he should be. Now, this kind of gets to the point of, oh, you know, the idea, this is something that people already knew. I think for a lot of people who actually favor John Key and would vote for him, they wouldn't have known this. No, although, you know... everyone in the country didn't know this. Although there are some of us on the radical left who sort of widely speculated this, but now we have proof, um, I guess, is the um, the way that I see it. But from your perspective of having written the book... You know, there's a lot of specific uh, incidents that have kind of been picked out and reported in the media. Is is the biggest story the whole context of trying to copy the worst parts of American politics, or or are there some specific incidents that you cover in the book that you see as absolutely damning or more damaging? I mean, is it the SIS OIA issue? Is it the you know, accessing the labor database, or or is it the Len Brown sex scandal? Um, is yeah, you, you've read the book, so let, let, but I'll explain something to people who are listening. When you do, when I put out a book like this, I've learned. I mean, this is my sixth book. I've learned from past experience that if I tried to to communicate everything in the book on day one, then there will be some random little bit of it which would be picked up. That would be the news. People would argue to and fro over it. The commentators right. would chew over it. Right. And so, and so I'm, I'll be completely upfront here. I thought the most important thing in the book that should come through is not there's this really horrible guy called Whale Oil and he does bad things, which actually people already knew, mm-hmm. but the most important thing was that people understood that this was not a random individual off somewhere else, but this was a national party aligned person, his father was the president of the National Party, but more important, that he was working with the ninth floor of the Beehive, and this wasn't an individual, this was actually a National Party attack machine. Now, that's the idea I wanted to come through, and so I emphasized some parts of that when the book first came out, because otherwise everything just gets overtaken in the clutter and the, and the denials and the rest of it. But, in case people think that's what the whole book is about, as you know, there's layer after layer, there's, there's some chapters which are nothing to do practically with a John Key with John Key's office or something and those are the ones like for example there's two chapters about Simon Lusk one of the National Party strategists mm-hmm. and he's one of the ones who he, he's a clever guy and I, I don't despise him or anything he's just from a different part of politics to what I personally believe in but he's got he's a very um, uh, f- um, focused strategist and what you see there is you see in his own words his plans for how to make New Zealand a more right-wing place, a 
allows him to move the National Party to the right. That's his main agenda, is how to make the National Party more right-wing. And he explicitly boasts about and talks about the ideas which he's bringing in from the United States to do this. Like that, that, that's his thing. His specialty is looking for ideas in the United States. And in his correspondence, I couldn't put it all in the book, but in his correspondence with Cameron Slater, he's constantly sending him think, through things about the Tea Party campaigns and stuff mm. like that, because that's where he gets his inspiration from. Now, now this is not a story about John Key or stuff like that, but it's very important part of my bigger story about what is going on with politics and who is driving it there. Right. And then you're right, and then there are other bits of the book which are completely separate. There's a chapter and a half of the book are about deliberately targeted sex scandals and mm. digging for dirt, and, which is which sounds like it's salacious, but actually it's a terrible part of politics. I, I've only, I, and I've been running, since the book came out, I've only been, really been doing interviews, but I've run into journalists who said to me quietly that they see us later. They don't want to, they've, they've actually had discussions in their newsrooms about, you know, none of us, none of us have got blameless lives, someone was saying to me. Mm. And we wonder if we started to do stories like you've done on Slater, we've thought about this in the past, would we suddenly find that we were being smeared as well? And this right. is and this is another thing that you see from you know the past of politics. That the, the U.S. example is, is Hoover, the FBI man, where you've got people who make it their business to save up dirt on other people, not to use it, but to have, but to actually be feared by them. And then Jack Cameron Slater actually says that it's one part of the book where he's he's getting information from his prostitute friend saying, "Go around the, go around the brothels for me. Find out what the politicians are doing." I want them to fear me. And, I mean, is there any evidence that, because, you know, for some of us who are a little bit more conspiratorial, and I (laughs) I wear that term with pride, (laughs) um, you know, it it looked like a deliberate honey trap with the involvement of Luigi and everything like that, or was it really just a super happy accident as far as this paradigm of Slater's MO goes? I I don't know. I mean, speaking for myself as someone who gets accused of being a conspiracy theorist as a way saying that I'm wrong and I don't know what I'm doing. It's, that's not a title that I want. But basically the way that what I have to do to, to, um, to retain the credibility so that people will read my work is to only go as far as I can prove things. Is to say, this is what I can prove, this is what I've found, this is what I this is what it looks like to me, this is my impression, but I don't know that, that and that. You know, I, I have to do that in my case. And so with in the case of Len Brown, it was an Auckland National Party thing to try and get rid of the Labour Party mayor. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But quite the stage where Cameron Slater came into it and exactly how it happened, I can only tell how much I know of it. And and if people haven't read it yet, it's already without having having to speculate or make something up. It's a it's a really horrible story, which should mean that that nobody, and no no reasonable person, even if that was the only half a chapter you read in the whole book. No reasonable person would listen to or take a story from Cameron Slater ever again. Right. Now, listen, uh, Nikki, I'm sure that the BBC and CNN are blowing up uh, your mobile to get you on. So I will be, uh, I'll ask you just, I just, one more question because uh, I think this is really important in terms of how the Prime Minister plays this and how the Prime Minister can channel popular discontent for the media because there there are reasons to be annoyed and frustrated with the media and I'd, I I want to draw the analogy a little bit um, with the teapot saga which was essentially uh, to dig his heels in and basically say you know 
to to refute, to deny, to not open any potential uh, line of questioning, to kind of close in the ranks, and basically to kind of sick a kind of populist people against the media and turn the table. Do you think, like I said, the journalistic fraternity will have the stomach to pursue what you've laid out is a very clear modus operandi of the National Party, which is vile, which is filthy, which no reasonable person can really expect that the Prime Minister's office didn't know about this. Do you expect them to have the courage to take this on, even as he yesterday in Dunedin says, nothing to see here, all lies, left-wing smear campaign? What are your thoughts on that? Um, it's clear what the government policy is. It's the same one with with every book I have ever written, whoever it was about, what PR people say to them is, don't give it oxygen. And, that, mm. and this, is, this is a sad thing, because a lot of these PR people are ex-journalists, and they know that unless people keep making comments, unless the government makes comments to keep a debate going, it just naturally dies, is how they see it. But the reason it naturally dies is, is, is exactly what you were saying, is because actually... If journalism just consists of he says and she said, and then suddenly he said or he or she won't say anything, then the issue dies. But they can dig into it. Now, I, I, mean, I, I think there's some pretty good people in the media, and I hope they're going to keep chasing this. There are also a lot of victims of this. Mm. You know, the, the, there are levels of this book. I mean, I, what pe anyone who's heard about this in the media so far has heard about a twentieth or, or less of what's in the book. And there are all kinds of people who have been targets of this and have been hurt by There are the political parties right. who have been the target of it. And the, the, the national party members that have been a target of this. Precisely. And so the thing that will determine whether this keeps rolling and whether people keep talking about it is two things, actually. The first one is, given the government and the national party are obviously going to hope it just dies away, is whether all those people who are victims and all those people who care about these things do something. So that's number one. But number two, I could have put this out as as a as a series of articles or something. If I only you had a blogger to drip feed it to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, could, I could have drip fed it if I was actually just doing it for maximum kind of short-term political effects. But I wrote a book, and the reason I believe in books is because you can put a coherent, bigger argument, and you hope that by the end of it, people understand politics rather than just kind of being showered with it. Right. And the point that I'm saying, my point number two is, the reason why I feel optimistic about this is this book is selling faster than any book mm. my publishers have ever had wow. on any subject. It sold out within a few hours. How many copies was that yesterday? Uh, New Zealand book numbers always sound small. It was 4,000 4, sold out in about three hours. That's not small. That's, okay? not, that's not small. I think, I think this will be the book that I've written that will sell the most, and I actually really believe people are going to read it. And it's actually, people who read books change the world. Right on. You know, even though it won't be every person who reads it, for every person who reads something, news gets around, and it's actually the people who bother to bother to read it. And it, this is not a this is a fascinating read. The, the people who read it, um, they're going to make the difference even more than the media are. I think, which which is why I'm glad I wrote it into a book, and I'm glad that it seems to be working as a book. Wow. Well, listen, we're really glad uh, that you've written this book and that you've uh, sh so generously shared your time with us. It's been a hectic whirlwind. Uh, for you these last few days, but um, we thank you so much for stopping off, and obviously we'll continue uh, pursuing, pushing this story, and uh, listen, hope to talk to you in the coming weeks. I'm always happy to talk to you guys. All right, Nikki, okay. thank you so much you. for everything you do. Everybody, buy the book. Buy the book, buy the book. I know we're not allowed to say vote for a certain party or do this, <laughs> but I am going to tell you to buy the book. Support investigative journalists. 
fiercely independent journalism at its best. You're listening to The Revolution Will Not Be Televised.